let's uh let's since it's a little a little late already, why don't we uh stand up and we'll read uh he he it starts off with him killing all of Azariah's well all of Ahab's family, uh Azariah who was the king and uh, not Azariah but uh because he killed those two kings last week. And uh, anyway, so he is, you know, when he was, if you remember from chapter 9, when he was uh, uh, anointed to be king, he was, the prophet told him, you are to destroy all of Ahab's descendants, well, his, all those who would be king. And I think the intimation there is the male descendants and his wife Jezebel, and so Jehu, in the first part of chapter 10, has kind of gone about that. He started in Jezreel, and he's wiping out anybody who's related to uh, Ahab. And I think, again, as I'll show this in a little bit, he apparently uh, was going beyond. He was not just killing the uh, male descendants of Ahab so that nobody could sit on a throne anymore, but he was killing anybody who was associated with Ahab. Uh, man, woman, and child, and, and apparently friends as well, to some degree. And so he, he's going overboard. I think that's the point. Well, let's begin reading um, in verse 12, where he's now going to move to Samaria. He set out and went to Samaria, and on the way, when he was at beth of the shepherds, Jehu met the relatives of Azariah, the king of Judah. And remember, he had killed uh, Azariah too, and Azariah had married... Uh, the daughter of Ahab, and so all his kids were uh, descendants of Ahab. So he kind of sees them all as family, in a sense. He says, who are you? And they answered, we are the relatives of Azariah, and we came down to visit the royal princess and the sons of the queen mother. And, of course, when you say we came down from Jerusalem, Jerusalem was higher elevation. So although they're going north into Israel, they're uh, geographically they're going down. The mountain, you might say, or down in, in that elevation. That's why you read about, you, you can always kind of get that when you read these uh, accounts. So he said, take them alive, and they took them alive and slaughtered them at the pit of beth Ekhed, 42 persons, and he spared none of them. And when he departed from there, he met Jehonadab, the son of Rechab, coming to meet him, and he greeted him and said to him, Is your heart true to my heart as mine is to yours? And Jehonadab answered, it is. Jehu said, if it is, give me your hand. So he gave me his hand, he gave him his hand. And Jehu took him up with him into the chariot. And he said, come with me and see my zeal for the Lord. So he had him ride in his chariots. And when he came to Samaria, he struck down all who remained to Ahab in Samaria till he wiped them out according to the word of the Lord that he spoke to Elijah. And remember, there's, to, to some degree, He's really obeying the Lord. Verse 18, Then Jehu assembled all the people and said to them, Ahab served Baal a little, but Jehu will serve him much. Now therefore call to me all the prophets of Baal, all his worshippers and all his priests. Let none be missing, for I have a great sacrifice to offer to Baal. Whoever is missing shall not live. But Jehu did it with cunning in order to destroy the worshippers of Baal. And Jehu ordered, Sanctify a solemn assembly for Baal. So they proclaimed it. And Jehu sent throughout all Israel. And all the worshippers of Baal came 
so there was not a man left who did not come. And they entered the house of Baal, and the house of Baal was filled from one end to the other. And he said to him who was in charge of the wardrobe, Bring out the vestments of all the worshippers of Baal. And he brought out the vestments for them. And then Jehu went into the house of Baal with Jehonadab, the son of Rechab. And he said to the worshippers of Baal, Search and see that there is no servant of the Lord here among you, for only the worshippers of ba- but only the worshippers of Baal. Then they went in to offer sacrifices and burnt offerings. Now Jehu had stationed eighty men outside and said, The man who allows any of those whom I give into your hands to escape shall forfeit his life. So as soon as he had made an end of the offering, the burnt offering, Jehu said to the guard and to the officers, Go in and strike them down, let not a man escape. So when they put them to the sword, the guard and the officers cast them out and went into the inner room of the house of Baal. And they brought out the pillar that was in the house of Baal and burned it. And they demolished the pillar of Baal and demolished the house of Baal and made it a, a tree into this day. Then Jehu wiped out Baal from Israel, or thus he did, excuse me. But Jehu did not turn aside from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which, which he made Israel to sin, that is, the golden calves that were in Bethel and in Dan. And the Lord said to Jehu, because you have done well in carrying out what is right in my eyes, and have done in the house to the house of Ahab according to all that was in my heart, your sons of the fourth generation shall sit on the throne of Israel. But Jehu was not careful to walk in the ways of the Lord, the God of Israel, with all his heart. He did not turn from the sins of Jeroboam, which made Israel to sin. In those days, and so, and so as we've seen, the beginning of the end, and so uh, things are starting to fall apart in the northern kingdom. And in those days, the Lord began to cut off parts of Israel. Haziel, who we know, defeated them throughout the territory of Israel, from the Jordan eastward, all the land of Gilead, the Gadites, the Reubenites, and, and the Nassites. Remember, they were the ones who stayed on the east side of Jordan. So all that territory was lost. And Aurora, which is by the valley of Arnon, which is Gilgal and Bashan. Now the rest of the acts of Jehu and all that he did and all his might, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel? So Jehu slept with his fathers, and they buried him in Samaria. And Jehoahaz, his son, reigned in his place. The time that Jehu reigned over Israel and Samaria was 28 years. Okay, maybe seated. So, just a, again, an interesting character, but I think as we intimated last week, uh, and, and as we read this week, uh, his heart really wasn't in the right place. He uh, feigned some sort of zeal for the Yahweh, but Clearly, uh, it was on his terms, and so that's kind of where we're seeing uh, this. Uh, last week, as we began to look at Jehu, we saw that under, to understand history is to understand his story. We must realize that the sovereign Lord is moving human history to his desired end. As we see these kings raise up, none of them learn from their predecessors, commit the same sins, and uh, suffer the same fate. Uh, and so... There, there's something, and again, uh, we thank the Lord for the life that he gives us, that we can, by his grace, look and hopefully see what happens to those who rebel against the Lord, who who live for themselves, and, and to, you know, exercise a little wisdom and say, you know what, just because it feels good now, just because somebody else has gotten away with it, 
the Bible is going to direct my life. I'm going to be true to the Lord. And if it means deferred reward, which it will, then that's okay. It's a limp for the here and now, never ends well. So we saw that every last word from the Lord finds fulfillment. The Lord does not forget any sin and will execute perfect justice. And he does not forget our works and will reward everyone perfectly as well. So that's the reality of things. And to live differently is to live in darkness. And and, uh, Christians just can't afford to do such a thing. So as we come to chapter 10, we have the account of Jehu carrying out the Lord's vengeance against Ahab's house. Remember this, this isn't, you know, he couldn't, the Lord doesn't do this for every king, every wicked king, but Ahab was a special, his sin was not just again to, to worship Yahweh in a pagan way, his sin was to cast out Yahweh altogether and bring in Baal worship, among his many other sins, and so, And again, my take on this is that Ahab was the last straw for Israel, and that's why he's being dealt with in a more severe way. And we see little hints, though, that Jehu is serving himself just as much as he feigns his love for the Lord. He appears to go beyond what is needed, even killing the close friends of the king. And I think one reason we uh, can look at things this way is not really just even the last section there of the chapter that we read, but in Hosea, which was, he was a prophet during uh, this time, during the latter days of the northern kingdoms. And the Lord said to him, call his name Jezreel, for in just a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. So, Jehu is used to bring judgment upon the house of Ahab, but Jehu uh, was serving Jehu. Uh, Jehu uh, did not do it as he should. Jehu had his own problems, and if we've seen anything, uh, remember, I think just recently I referred back to Habakkuk, who was complaining because the Lord's enemies were being used to uh, punish Israel, they seem to be worse than Israel, or at least in, in some instances. And, and so we kind of see the same thing here with Jehu. He he really wasn't much better than Ahab, and uh, so yeah, the Lord sees that. The Lord took care of that. And uh, so we see him going overboard. And one reason maybe he does this is because he figures anybody who is left of the house of Ahab, even his friends, might be a threat to his kingdom. So, you know, it's not unusual that men do this kind of stuff, but the Lord did not sanction all this. And so, as he's going now to Samaria, to, to uh, from Jezreel, uh, he meets an interesting character called Jehonadab, and uh, he was a descendant of Moses' father-in-law, Jethro, if you remember that part back. They were given some land. They, they settled down in the southern Judah, Simeon area. And uh, he is, for whatever reason, now up this way. And he, they were considered to be a godly people. They accompanied Israel into Canaan. And that's why they were given some of the land. But Jehonadab, it turns out, and you have to go, and I think, go to Jeremiah to learn all this. He had put his family under an oath kind of an oath of austerity, austerity, where they were to have no houses, they were to have no vineyards, they were not to uh, drink any alcohol. And, of course, if you 
didn't have a house and lands, you couldn't have a vineyard. And, and so they, he put them under this oath that they seemed to willingly have taken. And that had just, that was going on during this time period, which is interesting in and of itself. We're not really told as to why he put them under this oath. It's just that in Jeremiah's time, he meets some of his descendants who refer to all this. That's how we know about it. They were at this time to be uh, nomads, no houses, no lands, and so so forth. And it, it's possible that it was that Jehonadab did this because of the apostasy of the land that they lived in. Of course, you know, obviously, under uh, Ahab and, and the subsequent kings, kings, there was great apostasy. So perhaps uh, Jehonadab wanted them to have no part in the land and no part of all this to keep them, them, you know, not suffering the same fate. You know, that's just kind of a guess that was put out there. But in any event, it would be helpful to Jehu to have a man who is greatly respected and considered to be godly on his side. And so he, you know, says, do you agree with what I'm doing? And Jehonadab had no reason not to at that time. It seemed like it was the right thing. So he gets invited into the chariot. He gets to uh, see, first hand, uh, Jehu's zeal for the Lord. But you, you begin to see in Jehu's words a, uh, that his words are betraying him a little bit. He says, come see my zeal. And, and it seems that it's obvious at this point that uh He's willing to serve Yahweh as long as he can do so on his terms, as long as he can be seen of other men, perhaps. And, and to the point that once it's all done, he just continues. He doesn't reform Israel back so that they're worshiping Yahweh in Jerusalem in the way they should be. No, uh, we're not going to do that because that might threaten my kingdom. Again, the same reasoning that Jeroboam started all this to begin with. He keeps everything intact with the golden calves. So you see that his uh, uh, his uh, motivations are quite right. You remember when Jesus cleared the temple, uh, he uh, he quotes from the Psalms where he says, "The zeal of the Lord is consuming." Jesus' zeal, his motivation was the glory of God. Jehu's uh, motivation is of his own glory, and that causes him to obey in a way that suits him. And that's kind of the problem with Jehu. He's a zealot, uh, but he needed people to see him. And nothing exposes simple motives like the need of recognition. Zealous works don't make up for an obedient heart, for a disobedient heart. In fact, zeal uh, has done a lot of bad things. And people get overly zealous, we say, you know, and then, they're so intent on doing something that nothing else matters, even the truth or even right from wrong sometimes. And so if we don't carry Christ with us out of these doors, then uh, no matter what kind of zeal we have, it's going to be misguided in some way if it's not according to the word of the Lord. And uh, so he doesn't bring the Lord's blessings upon himself or the people. And uh, so I think that's kind of how we can sum up Jehu. And all this reminds us that God's ways and his judgments and dealing with this world isn't always cut dry and clean. You know, as I said, you know, God sometimes uses pretty awful people to 
bring judgment upon the society. And they're no better than the society that they've judged, but that's okay. You remember, I think, uh, the first message I ever preached here, there were three passages that everybody should have committed to memory, not, not, not necessarily word for word, but the references uh, of of a sovereign God, because you're always going to meet people out there who say, well, you know, how can God allow sin in the world and let these things go? And there's three passages that just, you know, explain all that and and should be our answer. Does anybody have to remember any of them? Genesis 50, where Joseph says, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. So there we see God overruling, using man's sin to do his bidding, and yet holding them accountable. The brothers were accountable for selling Joseph, because they were doing it not to serve the Lord, because of their own evil heart, right? Then Isaiah 10, where Israel is explained that the king of Assyria will be judged, because when he comes in to destroy Israel, he's doing it from his own heart to be exalted, not to obey the Lord. And so the Lord says, while he's doing my bidding, he's going to be, uh, he's going to answer for uh, uh, his sin. So it shows us that we can be responsible, and yet God is sovereign. And of course, the greatest one is in Acts 4, where it says these evil men with, with evil intentions crucified the Lord, but they were only doing what God had foreordained throughout eternity, right? To have, they could only do what God wanted them to do, but they're doing it in, in, for evil motivations. And so, those are extremely important passages that we don't want to, you, know, you should always have in your arsenal when people <clears throat> start to think that they can outthink God or question God. And so, because Israel's king, the northern kings, never kept covenant, we see the beginning of the end here, starting in verse 32 of the northern tribes. Secular history uh, tells us that Jehu aligned himself with the Assyrians politically. Haziel, remember, was from Syria, just directly north of Israel. The Assyrians were a little bit north and east of them yet. <clears throat> and so Jehu had aligned himself with Assyria, but of course that was breaking covenant in and of itself. And it didn't do any good. And, of course, later, they they do destroy Syria, but then they come right down and, and, and take uh, Israel captive as well. So that's what happens when you try to trust in uh, this world to help you for things instead of the Lord. And so uh, it's not unusual for rulers and people in general to make great claims, but fall short of actually following through. Of course, we... Today, first thing that comes to our mind are campaign promises, right? They, they say whatever they need to say, but they, in some cases, I don't think they ever had any intention of, of, of coming through. <clears throat> I actually read uh, something interesting about Vladimir Lenin. In case, you know, some of you didn't pay attention, he was the one who led the Bolshevik Revolution in uh, Russia in, uh, I think it was 1917. Uh, evil, evil man who uh, had a series of strokes toward the end of his life and ended up being kind of an invalid in a wheelchair, so that was fitting, but he, here's what he says, and before he's in power, each person must have complete freedom not only to observe any faith, but also to propagate any faith. None of the officials should even have a right to ask anyone of his faith, 
This is a matter of conscience, and nobody should dare to interfere in this field. And nobody ever lived contrary to that, and ruled contrary to that, than uh, Lenin. So, uh, but that, that's again, so he, he made great boasts and promises, but didn't live up to it. And of course, you think biblically, somebody who did this would be uh, Nebuchadnezzar. Remember when he had that dream and didn't couldn't remember either the dream, let alone what it meant, and he, Daniel tells him the, what dream he had and what it means. And he's so impressed that in chapter 2 of Daniel, verse 47, says the king answered and said to Daniel, Truly your king is, your, excuse me, truly your God is the God of gods and Lord of kings and revealers of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. So, it, with his mouth, he proclaims that there is no other God. But, I mean, he's the, he's the greatest of all gods. And then turns right around, and he makes a golden image of himself and commands everybody to bow down and worship him. Right? So, um, those people can say a lot of things. Jehu, you know, made a great profession, but he didn't live it. And as God's people, we are warned by that. And we say, that's not how I want to end up. I want to be true to the Lord. I want to live out my profession. And as we say, practice what I preach. And certainly as a preacher, I um, I take that very seriously. You know, as parents who are constantly preaching to your children and you know, teaching them, it's important that we, as much as we can, we're not hypocrites. We're not telling you something that we're not willing to do ourselves or, or that they can look at and say, you really, you tell me to do that, but I can see in your life that you don't mean anything by that. It's, it's, it's like the, the parents who, uh, would let their kids get, you know, maybe bust off the church or, or drop them off at church, but they're not going to church. And, and a child isn't fooled by any of that nonsense. If they've got to see in us a commitment to the Lord. And if they don't, then we're doing them a disservice. And it's only by the grace of God that uh, they're not going to be destroyed by that in some way. And so Jehu is not, <clears throat> he's a, a bit of a, a hypocrite. <clears throat> well, let me just uh, then read the first three verses of chapter 11. Now remember uh, that he has killed all the relatives of Ahab. Well, some of those relatives were in Judah. And so now it says, and when, now when Athaliah, the mother of Ahaziah, saw her son was dead, Athaliah was uh, a daughter of Jezebel, who had married into the kings of Judah. Her son, remember, of course, Jehu had killed Azariah, because he was up there visiting Jehoram at the time. She arose, she arose and destroyed all the royal family. This is in Judah. But Jehosheba, Jehosheba, the daughter of King Joram, sister of Ahaz, took Joash, the son of Ahaziah, and stole him away from among the king's sons who were being put to death. And she put him and his nurse in a bedroom. Uh, evidently, as we re- read other places, she took them into the temple at a place where the priests were, were living in the temple complex. And it hid him from Athaliah so that he was not put to death. And he remained with her six years, getting in the house of the Lord, with Athaliah, while Athaliah reigned over the land. And we'll show the subsequent uh, problems with all this 
Lord willing, in a couple of weeks, um, when I get back, but we see here some political intrigue, and of course there are a lot of political intrigue in these chapters, is it not? Um, but she was instrumental. The main reason why Judah right now was in uh, idolatry, remember Azariah and, and uh, the, the last two kings, Joram and Azariah, were uh, had married into Ahab's family and had brought the uh, nation of Judah into idolatry. And so it, she is a big part of the problem. In fact, over in Second Corinthians Chronicles, verse chapter twenty-one, we read, "And he had brothers, the son of Jehoshaphat, Azariah, and then these are different guys here. We'll let you read those silently. And they're all the sons of Jehoshaphat, king of Israel. Their father gave them great gifts of silver and gold and valuable possessions, together with fortified cities in Judah. But they gave the kingdom to Jehoram. Now." Remember, Jehoshaphat was a relatively godly king, one who compromised with Ahab, but overall he was a good king. So he was going to, Jehoram was the one he had chosen to be this, his, uh, his son to be the king after him, because he was the firstborn. Verse 4, when Jehoram had ascended the throne of his father and was established, he killed all his brothers with the sword and also some of the princes of Israel. He was 32 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned eight years in Jerusalem, and he departed with no one's regret. Remember, he died, I think he was wounded and died uh, in, uh, in an awful situation. And they buried him in the city of David, but, none in the, but not in the tombs of the kings. So, uh, that, that's kind of, that was uh, Azariah's father, and uh, you remember how he had killed all his brothers. And uh, so she was, no doubt, the evil behind all this. And so we might not all be movers and shakers of this world, but this is what happens when you marry ungodly people. And this is why the New Testament is so very plain. And just as Israel was to keep themselves away from the uh, pagans, the heathen, so we are to not bring ourselves into fellowship close fellowship with uh, the, the world as well. Israel is kind of seen as an example of that. Now, we don't do it in the way Israel did it, where we, you know, go off into an island somewhere and have our own little kingdom and don't let anybody who's lost in it. That's commun- communism, you know, going into a commune or whatever. That never works, uh, you know, because you take sin with you wherever you go. But we are to recognize that you cannot be in close loving fellowship with lost people because they will drag you down. They will have more influence upon you than you will of them. And just because there are times where a Christian has married a lost person and they they eventually get saved and it works out okay, doesn't mean that it's okay. The Lord still has made it very clear in 1 Corinthians 6, don't do it. Don't come to me someday uh, saying, I've, I've found, I've fallen in love with this guy. He's not a Christian, but I, would you marry me? I'm not going to do it. And you're going to get all upset. You're not going to like it unless you are humble yourself before the Lord. And I've seen this happen. Uh, get all mad at the preacher because he says, you don't know, that's, you're not supposed to do that. It's not my fault you've fallen in love with them. And now you're going to have to break it off. You know. 
And either they do or they don't. Or what happens a lot of times is you go to another church. Because there's always a church that will compromise. But, but this, is what, this is what happens. We're seeing this illustrated over and over again in the Old Testament. And that's why the New Testament just says it very plainly. Because you, you should have had all the Old Testament illustrations in your mind. And you understand why Paul says it in 1 Corinthians 6, right? It should be pretty obvious. And so, uh, relationships like that uh, are just, uh, you know, setting yourself up for trouble. And so later on in Second Chronicles 22, we see that the Lord stirs up the Arabs to invade Judah, and they carry off all of Jehoram's sons and daughters except for Azariah. So he kind of gets paid back. He's killed all his brothers, and eventually all he loses his entire family to invaders. And so again, the Lord sees all this. And, uh, but Azariah is left, and of course he becomes the next king. But I hope we see the difference, a distinct difference, in how the lost kings uh, live their life and how the godly kings reign and, and live their life. And, and there should be a very obvious difference in the way people who know God live and the way people who don't know God live. And it, it's, it's a plague of the church, that of the compromised church today, that there's so little difference in the way we live as opposed to the world. And it doesn't always have to be in a way we dress, although that should be one obvious difference in many cases, but there's just all sorts of differences in the places we go, in the language that we speak, in the time we spend in the Word and at church and with God's people, as opposed to the time we spend uh, with people who are not saved. There's just, uh, what we live for, our attitudes, the way we speak, you know, everything about us, should, should, there should be a differences. And uh, there's something wrong when there's not. And one thing we certainly can think about with Jehu and, and a lot of the, these kings is there's just no regard for human life. And uh, that certainly is something prevalent today as we see that, uh, that this world is, is uh, crazy over killing babies. And of course, you know, why do they hate the babies so much? Well, because... The, the, the God of this world is uh, sexual, uh, doing whatever I want to do, sexual freedom. And having a baby is a consequence of, of sex. And so, therefore, I will not stop denying myself what I want, so I'll just kill the baby. And that's, of course, the impetus of the women's movement, right, back in the 60s. They could not be advanced and had the same positions in business as men because they kept having these pesky babies every so often. and I just raised them, and so this is abortion, and then it takes care of it, and, and 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 so it's all about that. That that's every bit of it is about that, and it, it's complete selfishness, and uh, that's historically there's no question about any of that. By the way, I, I, I think we all should know that by now. So anyway, here she sees that not only her son Azariah is dead, but Jehu has killed, has killed the rest of her family, so perhaps one reason why she kills all the children uh, who, who would be next in line is maybe in, out of spite because all her family's been killed, but clearly she's got designs on uh, being the queen, and uh, so she gets rid of, uh, she tries to get rid of all the descendants of David. 
And that's where it kind of becomes interesting here because if that one, if that woman who was a, who was the wife of the high priest, if she hadn't hidden Joash, it, David's kingdom would have come to an end. And, and think about it. David, God had promised David that, you know, it was going to be one of his descendants who was going to sit on the throne forever for speaking of Christ. And so it, it came down to her just uh, hiding this one boy. And if she hadn't done that, the whole redemptive plan of God would have fallen apart. Now we know, this is what the beauty of it, is that only a perfectly sovereign God would ever allow things to get so bad so that it all came down to what the life of one child. But that is the beauty of it, is that it only someone who knows that, that nobody can do anything apart from what he wants would allow things to get that um, that hairy, hairy, we might say. But, but of course, it reminds us of, of what happened with Jesus. You know, because Jesus, who is the Messiah, is born in a very meager, seemingly weak setting. Uh, by the skin of his teeth, humanly speaking, uh, as Herod goes to kill the slaughter, uh, the, the, all the baby boys, he, in a dream, is led out by Joseph, and they go, they flee to Egypt and so forth. But, but why does the Lord allow that? Well, because it's, even if he hadn't, if, if Jesus had been born in a fortress where nobody could touch him, he's no more safe there than he is traveling uh, on those dangerous roads to Egypt. Because God's in control of all this, right? And that's the beauty of this. What it does is accentuate how powerful the Lord is, how sovereign he is. Because, you know, if we were doing it, we would be thinking of taking every precaution to to make sure that, you know, there are plenty of, of David's descendants out there just in case one died, we got another one take his place. But the Lord doesn't need to do that because Joash couldn't have died for any reason. If the Lord doesn't want him to die, and of course, clearly he did not. So anyway, to me, that's just an extremely interesting thing to see how the Lord sometimes allows Satan to almost wipe out the descendants of David, but not quite. So let's just close by reminding ourselves that this is the way it has always been, and will continue to be until the Lord comes back, uh, the world doing their thing and not learning from it, and Satan trying to destroy the Lord's work, but, you know, we see for the last 2,000 years, we see that the church only grows, or at least grows its best, uh, with the blood of the martyrs. You know, the blood of the martyrs is called the seed of the church for a reason, right? Satan hates the church, and he hates his people who compose the church. And we're not going to ever impress the world, but we haven't been called to impress the world. We've We've been called to appear weak and, and to, to, to look like outcasts. And that's okay. Because that's how they treated the Lord. Uh, they didn't listen to what he had to say. They didn't listen to what the apostles had to say. They didn't listen to what we have to say. Except, of course, the elect. The elect do. That's how they're brought in to the church. But the, the church has never thrived when it's had any measure of power. 
And it's, it hasn't been called to do that. The church is called to preach the gospel and to offend those who hear it. When we think that we can impress the lost with our entertainment centers and trying to look like we've got everything together, we talk like them, we look like them, uh, we conduct our services in a way that pleases them, and we are ashamed of the offensiveness of the gospel, we might build great big churches and great big ministries, but we're not impressing the world. In fact, I think that when you think about all the church out there with women pastors uh, who have compromised with uh, the homosexual and the transgenders and, and other political things that's going on, I don't think the world are impressed by that at all. They, they might praise it. But they know they've won the battle. They know that those those supposed Christian churches have nothing now to offer. They've compromised themselves. And who they they don't hate them. They hate us who will not compromise on those things. And we shouldn't have any problem with that. You know, it's not that we like to be despised, but that's what the truth does. So we are to invite them to our churches. Uh, often t- today, that, that they don't invite them to churches to hear from God. They invite them to play games, to watch a movie. To, to ne- but they never call them to make a clear break from this world and through repentance and faith and to follow only the Lord. And as a result, we have a lot of churches and a lot of church goers. But you just there's so many churches that you just don't see any real difference. And I don't want us to be like that. It doesn't mean that we have to be odd and we don't have to look Amish. We don't have to, we don't have to do things that aren't biblical necessarily. You know, we don't have to be different for different sake. And, and, and I remember I was raised in fundamentalism and I, and I remember the pastor more or less saying that. It wasn't, it wasn't that unusual. He said, when the world goes this way, uh, we're to go this way. Well, no, if we're, if we're doing what's right, we don't need to. No, the opposite way. We just don't need to compromise with the world. We don't, you know, because he was complaining because the world will go this way and the church will go that way. Well, yes, that that is a problem. But we don't need to go the opposite way to to make up. That doesn't help anything. When we when we just like that's I think you see that when people say everything new is bad. Well, no, not everything new is bad. Not all music is bad. Um, but we we don't compromise. We don't do those things that are unbiblical. Because we've not been called to do that. And so what we're going to see in these chapters, and that things that have always gone on in one way or another, uh, is uh, this, this compromise with the world. But we're here to call sinners to repentance, no matter how that might go over. But that's what the world's greatest need is. It is the gospel. It is, it is not entertainment or befriending us. So, uh, well, I think we'll see a little bit in the Beatitudes or in the uh, Sermon on the Mount as well. But any questions or comments before we close for this day and for uh, the time we have together to fellowship and to listen to the Word of God, to, to see these things that you have included, that you felt was important enough for us to see. And, uh, Lord, we uh, just pray that you might uh, enlighten us, give us, edify us, Lord, that we might be strong in the faith. Bless our time together this day. Bless those who will be traveling this week and the fellowship of the getting with families and all the things going on. That At the end of the day, we would um, rejoice that Christ has come 
to save us from our sins. In Jesus' name we pray.